Welcome back, my spooky friends. This is Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. All right, let's get right into it. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about all kinds of voodoo. Pretty excited about this episode, um, as voodoo is one of the religions that, you know, cover spirits and stuff like that. Um, which makes it really fascinating for me. Uh, uh, one disclaimer is I will try to be as respectful as possible, as this is a currently practicing religion in countries like Haiti, etc. Um, so I will be reading these stories, but just keep that in mind as well. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into the first stories. First one comes from Ranker.com. It's 10 stories of criminals who invoked voodoo to commit heinous crimes. This is written by Lyra Radford. Terrifying voodoo magic has has featured in many Hollywood screenplays, but what about real-life voodoo curses? And what is a voodoo curse anyway? Whatever your personal beliefs on the supernatural, remember that voodoo is a very real religion. It is most commonly practiced by the people of Haitian and African heritage, but voodoo has spread due to African diaspora. See what I tell you. The supposed effect of voodoo has been well documented, but when it comes to tales of voodoo curses that worked, anthropologists and psychologists typically agree that the misfortune that befalls the cursed is psychosomatic. If someone believes they are cursed and those around them enforce the idea, they will become depressed, stop taking care of themselves, and lash out violently. The curse thus becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, as the person inadvertently destroys their own life. This list explores some of the scary voodoo stories that have made headlines over the years. Whether they were dark forces at work here, or all-too-human concerns like self-sabotage and murderous impulses, is open to interpretation. Number 1. The Curse of Julia Brown, the Voodoo Priestess of Menek Swamp In the early 20th century, Julia Brown was a local healer and magic practitioner in Frenier, Louisiana, She would travel all over the village to perform rituals for people, and she was known for her magic touch. Unfortunately, the people began to take advantage of her, demanding her help until she began fighting back. Those she deemed disrespectful or ungrateful would be given terrifying predictions, or she would curse them. In the last few weeks before her death in 1915, Brown would sing her curse for the town of Frenier to herself over and over. One day I'm going to die, and I'm going to take all you with me. Her passing came as she predicted, and the whole town went to her funeral to pay their respects out of fear. As they began to nail Brown's coffin shut, a devastating hurricane tore through the village, killing all but two people. Just as the priestess had promised, the town died with her. Brown's curse seemingly lives on. Many developers have tried to rebuild the area over the years with no luck. Freaky, freaky. All right, number two. A cult leader performed ritual sacrifices to help drug cartels in Mexico. Adolfo Costanzo was a cult leader, serial killer, and practitioner of an offshoot of Haitian voodoo. In the 1980s, he gave psychic readings and worked magic for dangerous drug cartels and hitmen. He'd cast spells to bring them luck, curse enemies, and was somehow able to keep his clients from getting busted. His rituals involved the sacrifices of chickens, goats, snakes, and even humans. Costanzo finally overstepped when his followers kidnapped an affluent American student named Mark Kilroy to use as a sacrifice. Police began tracking Kilroy and even found Costanzo's base of operation. When his ranch of horrors was finally raided by the police, they uncovered 15 mutilated corpses and Kilroy's dismembered body. Costanzo was 
so determined to stay out of prison that he ordered one of his followers to shoot him. Number three, a voodoo curse allegedly drove a 14-year-old to murder his little sister. It was witchcraft, Ronald Eric Salazar said when asked to explain the brutal murder and rape of his 11-year-old sister, Marina Salazar, in 2005. He was just 14 years old when he killed her. Salazar originally blamed two armed men for his sister's death, but later confessed to the horrific crime himself. Allegedly, a witch in El Salvador claimed the boy had inherited all an old voodoo curse from his father once he left for the United States in 1991. The boy was left behind with his grandparents and his father's curse. Once Salazar was able to make his way to America, he brought the curse with him, and it drove him to kill his sister. Cursed or not, he was sentenced to two life terms in prison in October of 2009. Wow. All right. 45 voodoo priests were lynched for a cholera outbreak. A massive outbreak of cholera claimed the lives of 2,500 people across Haiti in 2010. Another 63,500 people were hospitalized, and 121,000 were treated for symptoms. Many Haitians assumed the outbreak was due to a voodoo curse, and they began attack, attacking voodoo priests in the area. Mobs lynched at least 45 people, while others were beaten, stoned, and hacked with machetes before they were set on fire. Wow. See, and that's just why you can't take some of the stories as face value, because who knows if it's self-fulfilling prophecies or an actual voodoo curse. But if you take it into your own hands and go after the practitioners of this faith, you know, you're just as wrong as if there was a curse on something. <laughs> All right, I digress. A father cursed by voodoo killed his children and himself. Staten Island, New York resident Franz Bordes insisted that a relative had put a voodoo curse on him. In late August of 2006, he drowned his two children in a bathtub. Then he jumped in front of a train. Rambling notes written by Bordes in English and Creole were found by his bed. They all spoke of the curse, with Bordes claiming the voodoo have been used against him. Sex traffickers reportedly controlled their victim with voodoo. In, 2000s, in the 2000s, Nigerian sex traffickers not only lured women to Spain under false pretenses, but they also claimed to use voodoo to control them. The victims were extremely poor, and the couple leading the operation would cover their travel expenses and promise them jobs in Europe. Once the women arrived in Spain, they were kidnapped and forced into sex work. In addition to threatening the well-being of their families, the sex traffickers performed voodoo ceremonies and animal sacrifices in front of the women. During these rituals, the women were forced to pledge their loyalty and obedience. They were told that they would go mad and become horribly sick if they failed to obey any orders. The couple was arrested by Spanish police in July of 2015. Man, a stalker ex-husband tormented his wife with voodoo before killing her. He tried to kill Florence all the time with voodoo, says Sylvia St. Louis, St. Louis, when asked about her daughter's relationship with her estranged husband. After Florence Bolau, Bolau, I don't know, of Massachusetts left her, Abusive husband, Jean-Michael Bolau, Bolau, something like that was their last name. He apparently turned to voodoo and stalking to intimidate her. Florence filed a police report requesting a restraining order after finding ritual candles on her doorstep one night. Tragically, that wasn't enough. John Michael murdered his estranged wife on May 16, 2014. The 30 seven-year-old mother of four, was discovered by her own children. The following day, Jean-Michael was arrested trying to cross the Canadian border. 
A man claiming to be cursed committed murder to save his soul. A Florida man named Valdano Rick was convinced of a voodoo curse had been set on him. He claimed that Dennis Donahue had allegedly sprayed Rick with voodoo water and stolen his soul. Rick said killing Donahue was the only way to break the curse and restore his soul. In December of 2012, Rick went to Donahue's home and shot him. He faces a charge of first-degree murder. All right, the Voodoo Hex murder of Shelbyville. On March 22, 1957, the body of Simon Warner was found shot. Warner considered himself a crime doctor with psychic abilities he used to solve and prevent crimes. Unfortunately, he didn't see his own murder coming when Mose Martin walked through his doors seeking healing magic for a stomach issue. According to Martin, he paid Warner $50 for a cure and his stomach ailment only grew worse. He was convinced Warner hexed him on purpose. He confessed to the officer, Derwood Thompson, saying, I shot him because he double-crossed me in voodoo. I would have shot anyone who double-crossed me in black magic like he did. All right. Keeping on going. Voodoo scare tactics disrupted a Miami election. In the political arena, a certain amount of intimidation is expected. However, in the case of North Miami mayoral candidate Anne Pierre, the intimidation was rather unusual. In 2013, Pierre found voodoo artifacts outside her campaign office. The items were all believed to be tied to Haitian voodoo rituals. It included candles, chicken feathers, scraps of food, pennies, and voodoo dolls with pins stuck in them. Pierre went on to record stating, or went on record stating she believed someone was attempting to get her out of the race, but she would not back down. She was also asked to public, asked the public to pray for her and later claimed that Jesus endorsed her. When Pierre lost the election, she said the people voted for Lucifer. <laughs> wow. That's politics for you. Alright, hopping on over to another article. This one comes from FrenchQuarter.com. Uh, it's called True History and Faith Behind Voodoo by Katie Rechtal. Every year now, the voodoo experience and its taglines join the ritual and worship the music pegs its own calendar to Halloween. This has been a tradition in New Orleans, much like All Saints Day, where families head to the graveyards of the French Quarter and beyond to whitewash and sweep the tombs clean and decorate with fresh flowers. Jeffrey Gandolfo, a native New Orleans whose family has run the Voodoo Museum in the French Quarter since the 1970s, has seen oodles of products and places that take the name Voodoo. Sometimes the term is used derogatorily in terms like voodoo economics and voodoo science, but at the festival held outdoors under the live oaks, the drums and the music could summon the spirits and echo the past, living up to its name, voodoo. If done right, the music should take possession of you. You won't be able to stand still, and if that happens, you are doing voodoo, he said. There is continuity. Voodoo's New Orleans Roots Voodoo came to the New Orleans in the early 1700s through slaves brought from Africa's western slave coast. Like so many things, New Orleans voodoo was then infused with the city's dominant religion, which is Catholicism, and became a voodoo-Catholicism hybrid, sometimes referred to as New Orleans voodoo. In New Orleans, for instance, Legba, the voodoo deity who controls the gates of the spirit world, becomes St. Peter, who holds the keys to the gates of heaven. The hybrid was evident in Murray Laveau, a devout Catholic who attended Mass at St. Louis, Louis Cathedral and was a close friend of the cathedral's priest, Pierre Antoine. Today, voodoo lives on in New Orleans through people who see it as part of their culture. 
Through error-prone rumor and through long shadow of Laveau, the city's best-known voodoo inn, in front of Laveau's brick-and-mortar tomb in St. Louis, St. Louis, number one cemetery on the outskirts of the French Quarter, fans lay out stacks of nickels, paper flowers, and other offerings. Visiting cemeteries such as this one is one of the most popular things to do in the French Quarter and beyond. When Laveau was alive and living in, on St. Anne Street, people used to knock at her door at all hours looking for legal help, food, or advice about a straying husband. Her death in 1881 didn't stop that. In voodoo, an ancestor is as much alive as a living person. Gandolfo said, you just go to her new home now. Laveau, who is always known as the Widow Paris after the death of her first husband, Jacques Paris, was striking spiritual figure, a do-getter, a free woman of color. She adopted orphans, fed the hungry, visited prisoners, and nursed countless patients back to health during the yellow fever epidemic. She also was a skilled naturopath, treating patients with mas massage, teas, herbs, salves, tinctures, which likely was more successful with yellow fever parents than bloodletting and other medical techniques of the day. Some of the books cite firsthand accounts of the neighbors recalling how Laveau had flowers, candles, and images of saints and altars throughout her home how the front steps were scrubbed every morning with brick dust to protect the house, and how she had a statue of St. Anthony of Padua, the patron saint of finding lost things, that she would turn upside down when she was working. Voodoo in New Orleans today. Hoodoo is a non-religious belief in the objects of voodoo or Grigri's. Gandolfo likens it to a belief that a four-leaf clover is lucky. New Orleans has had a long line of famous hoodoo practitioners and shops. People here still talk about the spells that, that use images of saints, chicken feet, graveyard dust, brick dust, gunpowder, pins and needles, candles, and incense. And that's just a quick recap on the history and faith behind voodoo. All right. Jumping on over to another article written by Tim Weisberg. The true story of three deaths caused by a voodoo curse in Westport. The first thing you need to know is that this is a true story. It's a story about voodoo. A story about three deaths that ha may have been caused by a curse. A story about a famous fish doll, black magic, and the havoc it wreaked on a South Coast family. And once again, it's all true. I came across this tale when working on my book, Haunted Objects, Stories of the Ghosts on Your Shelf, which I co-authored with my friend Christopher Bazzano. Another longtime friend, John Brightman of New England Paranormal Research, answered my call for stories of haunted or cursed objects, items with a story that might be unbelievable the most. But to someone who understands the dark and mysterious nature of superstition on the South Coast, stories of the fantastic are not so uncommon. John was requested to come help a woman in Westport. We'll call her Amanda, and we'll change the other names too. She was having paranormal activity that had been ongoing in her home, which had been where she grew up with her mother, sister, and brother. All three had recently passed away, and the home had been plagued with phenomena such as objects moving on their own, doors that would open and slam shut. Amanda saw a mist coming up from the basement doorway, and her young granddaughter said she saw her dead great-uncle Roger near the staircase. The home had previously belonged to Amanda's mother, Esther, who had lived into her 90s despite failing health. Also living in her home had been Amanda's brother, Roger, who was in his 60s but was also quite ill himself. He had shouldered the burden of caring for Esther, even though the youngest sister, Vivian, was also living there but refused to help with Esther's care. 
Roger was out of the house one day, and Vivian saw her chance. She told her mother about how her brother wasn't going to get any better, and he may try putting her in a nursing home to rot and die. Vivian swore to Esther that if she signed the house and everything over to her, just her, she would see that Roger couldn't remove her from her beloved home and she would die with dignity. She signed everything over to Vivian, including power of attorney. Well, Roger was furious when he found out. After all, he was the one sacrificing his time and apparently his own health to care for his mother. On top of that, Vivian lied. Once Esther signed everything over to her, she put her mother in a nursing home anyway and told Roger he had to get out of what was now her house. Esther died shortly thereafter, and no cause of death ever determined, according to medical records. Two months later, Vivian suffered a ruptured spleen and died unexpectedly. Roger gave in to his own health problems a few months after that. Within a span of eight months, all three had died. Amanda inherited the house and everything in it, and she wanted to sell it and be rid of the reminder of all the family drama that she had to watch from the sidelines. It was while she was cleaning the house she discovered the altar. It was a small desk in Roger's room with three or four candles placed across its surface. In the center was a strange box. Before he took ill, Roger had was successful commercial fisherman, and Amanda thought it might have been something he came across in his travels for work. The box is about eight inches long, four inches wide, and almost looked like a jewelry box. Inside was a stuffed toy that appeared to resemble a fish, even though it was old and faded. Tacked to it were three photographs, two of which were people she instantly recognized. Her sister Vivian, her mother Esther, little stick pins had been inserted into the doll in various positions, making it resemble a voodoo doll. There was also a photo of a man she did not recognize. Also in the box were extra pens, some dried herb that she thinks might have been sage, mysterious oils and ointments that, with no labels. It looked like many items were quite old, and perhaps this was something Roger had been practicing for many years. Although Amanda had no way of knowing, Roger's work as a commercial fisherman brought him in contact with people of various cultures around the world. Sailing out from New Bedford, he worked alongside many seamen from Portugal and Brazil. In Brazil culture, Brazilian culture, there is a form of black magic known as macumba. It's possible that Roger learned this version of Brazilian voodoo from one of his fellow fishermen. Macumba rituals usually are often used to seek revenge on family members have, who have done harm, and the rituals also often involve utilizing a photograph of a person you want to inflict the dark magic upon. For that reason, many superstitious Brazilians will not allow a photograph of themselves to be given to someone they don't know. So it's no surprise after he discovered the altar, Amanda's house was plagued with paranormal activity. It's no surprise after she discovered the altar, Amanda's house was plagued with paranormal activity. Amanda hired a medium to come in and possibly help any restless spirits move on from the house and to help remove any bad vibes brought about by her brother practicing voodoo in the house. The medium explained that the pins that were stuck in the fish doll were arranged in a way that it would inflict pain on the intended target. Without knowing about Vivian or how she died, she pointed to where one of the pins appeared and to be placed in what would represent the spleen. A shiver ran down Amanda's spine. The medium also told Amanda that if they took the box with the doll from the altar and buried it in the yard, the hauntings would stop. It didn't take, which is why she later brought in John and his paranormal group. They came in and investigated for over nine hours, but captured no sign of paranormal activity themselves. They even dug up the box and the doll in hopes that bringing it back into the house would lead to activity, but nothing happened. John believes it's because the haunting was only meant for family. The mystery also remains as to who the man in the third photograph stuck stuck to the stuffed fish doll. Speculations is that it could have been a partner in the fishing business that had wronged Roger in some way. That might even explain why the doll was shaped in the shape of a fish. When the box was removed from the property, John took it in his own possession before eventually turning it over to the legendary paranormal researcher 
Haunted Collector starred John Zaffis. All the strange activity reached an abrupt end. A sense of peace that had been missing from the home for many decades once again filled its room. The curse apparently lifted. Alrighty. Cool story. Right before we get into another one, uh, I have heard a saying about voodoo dolls um, that if you use a doll, you're pretty much inviting the same action to be invited, like the doll to be invited to have the same action visited upon you that you're trying to intend for someone else. So maybe that's why he died shortly after. Who knows? Again, just speculation. All right. This one is, do you know, or do you do voodoo? The real story behind the tribal myth. Voodoo rituals and practices vary not only between countries, but also between groups, having adapted over time to different circumstances. Its 400-year-old roots lie among the Yoruba tribe from the area of Africa, which today comprises Tongo, Benin, and parts of Nigeria. The general belief is was one in, was in one supreme being, the Grand Mater, and the whole host of lesser deities called Iola. All ceremonies are to honor the Iola and keep them happy as they have the power to make good and bad on earth. These ceremonies, often lasting all night, involve excessive singing, drumming, chanting, usually accompanied by gifts for the gods. A bottle of gin or palm wine is poured onto the ground, or a chicken or goat is slaughtered. The blood of the animal may be drunk to impart its supernatural powers. The soul of the animal is released so that Iola may use it to rejuvenate itself. Each Iola has its own preferred animal sacrifice as well as its own frenzied rhythm and type of drum that may be played to keep it happy. The sacred drums are, are always played in an orchestra of three. The smallest drum is the bula. The middle drum is the segond, And the largest and most powerful is the man-man. The Iola, or Loa, I don't know why I thought that was an I. Either one. Uh, sorry if I'm saying that wrong. But I'm just going to keep saying Iola. The Iola are believed to be spirits of the... Believed to be spirits of the major forces of the universe in everyday life such as good, evil, and health but also the spirits of dead ancestors. From this, the zombie image originally emerged as with the aid of a skillfully played man-man drum. A dancer may become possessed by the Iola, trembling and convulsing as the spirit enters their body and through them communicates to the whole village. They enter a trance-like state, which may last for hours or even days, a deeply spiritual phenomenon that a worshiper may wait years to experience. <laughs> All right, moving on. This is fascinating. Um, we're going to take a short break and then be right back at it with some more spooky stories. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, welcome back. We go now to darkhistories.com, um, where there is a story. Let's see. About zombies. 
All right, let's begin. In 1980, a man walked into a marketplace in the Haitian town of Lister. He approached a woman and greeted her warmly, introducing himself by his boyhood nickname. The man and woman, women were in fact family, but the women simply stared back at him in shock. As word spread throughout the marketplace of the man's arrival, panic and commotion began to stir the human Haitian air. The humid Haitian hair. Eh, Haitian air. The man's name was Clervius Narcisse. He was well known to Lestere. To his dismay, he found that his warm greeting was not returned. This should not have struck him as such a surprise as Clervius Narcisse had died and been buried in Lestere Cemetery 18 years prior. This is dark histories where the fact where the facts are worse than fiction. Harvard University 1982. In 1982, Wade Davis, now a professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia, was studying for a PhD in ethnobotany at Harvard. He had traveled to far-flung reaches several times in support of his studies and had taken a particular interest in studying psychoactive plants used among the tribes people of the Americas. In the spring of 1982, he received a call from Professor Richard Evan Schultz, his professor at Harvard, and a man who had traveled extensively himself to many of the remotest places on the earth in search of obscure plant knowledge. He had once lived in the rainforest for eight years after taking a single semester leave. He had been instrumental in fostering Davis's own exploratory urges. When in 1974, while studying at Harvard, Schultz had advised Davis on his first expedition into South American rainforests. This time, he had something for Davis that would prove to be a little stranger. They arrived. Or they arranged a meeting, and when Davis arrived in Schultz's office, he asked Davis if he would be able to leave for the Caribbean country of Haiti within two weeks. Schultz had set Davis up with a doctor, Nathan Klein, a psychiatrist who had done exhaustive work in the field of psychopharmacology. Davis agreed to meet Klein, and two days later, in a Manhattan apartment over drinks and thick crystal glasses, Klein handed Davis the death certificate, dated 2nd of March, 1962, of one Clervius Narcisse. Clervius Narcisse lived in the village of Lestere, Haiti, where he was born in 1922. He had little responsibilities and never settled to marry. He had nevertheless taken to several women around Lestere, fathering children with multiple women while stepping aside of responsibility, both financial and parental. He owned several small plots of land, which he had inherited from his parents, with which he farmed for profit and had made a secure living for himself. His sister told how he had been able to afford a tin roof for his house before anyone else in the neighborhood. Despite this, Narcisse had never been of much help to his family, preferring instead to keep his wealth to himself which had led to several disputes with his brothers in the past, both over his land, which by Napoleonic code should have been divided among the offspring after his parents' death, but which Clervius had kept to himself and his money. His wealth was in no part afforded to him due to lack of familial or parental responsibilities. So the picture of Narcisse builds that he was a man of many enemies within a small market community of Lestere. On the night of 30th April 1962, Clarius Narcisse, then 40 years old, admitted himself to the hospital in De Chapelle at 9.45 p.m. <coughs> complaining of fevers, an aching body, and spitting blood. Once in the hospital, his continued his condition deteriorated rapidly. On the 2nd of May, he was pronounced dead by both Haitian and American physicians. Two of his sisters, Angelina and Marie-Claire Narcisse, witnessed the body, after which he was held in cold storage for 20 hours and buried in the cemetery, May 3rd, 10 a.m. 
18 years later, he stumbled into Lister Marketplace and approached his sister, Angelina. He used his boyhood nickname for himself, that which only his family had known and had not been used for decades. He claimed that one of his brothers had contracted a zombie ritual upon him in retaliation for one of the land disputes and that he had been resurrected from his grave shortly after death, beaten, bound, and taken away to work as a slave in the north northern region of Haiti with a group of other zombies. There he worked the land, emotionless and cold, for two years until the death of his master broke his spell. He stayed away from Lister for another for the next 16 years in fear of his brother, but upon hearing of his death, chose to return. Angelina was not the picture of joy he had hoped for. She recoiled from Clarius, her eyes catching a scar on his cheek where, 18 years prior, a misplaced nail had caught his skin as his coffin lid had been hammered shut. She offered him money and told him to leave, for he was a dead man walking. His life departed and his flesh pulled from the ground by Haitian voodoo. In 1789, Haiti was under colonial rule by the French Empire and named Saint-Domingue. Domingue. I'm probably saying that wrong. It produced 40% of the sugar and 60% of the coffee that was consumed throughout all of Europe at the time. Known as the Pearl of the Antilles, it was one of the richest colonies in the world. Needless to say, it was built and supported on the, black, on the back of black slavery, and it estimated that the French bought in around 790,000 African slaves between the years of 1783 and 1791. This accounted for one-third of the entire Atlantic slave trade. These people, torn from their homes, brought the uh, bought, brought the traditions of their homeland with them, one of which, despite French efforts to force Catholicism upon the slaves, was the religion of African voodoo. It was in fact a voodoo ceremony that would eventually lead to a revolution in 1791, where the spirit Elzili Zantor possessed a priestess and received a black pig as an offering. All those present pledged to fight for their freedom. In 1804, the slaves liberated themselves from French rule, fighting back Napoleon's army to take Saint-Domingue and de declaring independence. The island was renamed Haiti. However, in 1935, voodoo became punishable by law, forcing it underground. As we have seen, however, traditions die hard and secret voodoo societies would hold nighttime rituals in secret hunfor away from the eyes of the ruling elite. Priestesses thrashing wildly to rhythmical drums as they took in the spirits of the voodoo gods. They used voodoo to both protect and punish the people of local communities, offering aid and cautioning sickness among the blood of animals and heat of hot coals. Oof. All right, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, 1918. One of the first mentions of zombies in Western writing is the book written by William Seabrook and published in 1929 titled The Magic Island. The section pertaining to zombies is, sort of, is short, but the story he tells goes as such. In the spring of 1918, an American sugar factory in Port-au-Prince ran by Hasco was having a busy season and needed to hire extra workers for the harvest. Whole families would register at Hasco Fields at the end of the week. Each member would be paid for their work. One morning, a man named Ty Joseph and his wife Croyance showed up at Hasco with a pack of workers, all walking, standing as if in a daze. The registrar apparently likened them to cattle with a vacant stare, but Ty Joseph explained they were ignorant people from the mountains, unable to speak the local language. At the end of the week, he would collect wages for each member, naturally keeping it for himself. Each night, Ty and his wife would prepare meals for themselves and the workers, keeping the workers' food separate and taking care to make sure that no meat or seasoning be mixed into the workers' food. At weekends, a nearby market town 
held a fiti, and the husband and wife would take turns to attend while the other stayed with the workers. Ty Joseph's wife, Croyance, however, felt sorry for the workers and wanted to see the procession for herself, decided one weekend to take them to the fit. She led the workers to the village and they sat, staring vacantly under the shade of the tree as the parade walked past. A peddler selling tablets, a sugar-coated cookie with uh, peanuts, salted prior to baking, and upon tasting the salt, the dazed workers sprung up, panicked at their situation. They marched ceasingly back to their home village and ripped up the soil and died again. Wait, they they marched ceasingly back to their home village with Croyants unable to stop them, turned into the cemetery, and found, each found a grave site that belonged to them, climbed down into the pits of freshly ripped up soil, and died again. For these workers were zombies, under a voodoo spell of Ty Joseph. The locals of the village proceeded to take revenge on Ty Joseph and promptly cut off his head. Goodness. This story was told to William Seabrook by a Haitian man named Polynice Seabrook. Seabrook didn't... Ugh. The story was told to William Seabrook by a Haitian na man named Polynice. Seabrook didn't believe it, and indeed it sounds more like an urban legend than any truth. But Polynice swore blind that it was true, and further promised Seabrook he could show him a real-life zombie. Polynice took Seabrook to see an old woman named Lamercy, who he knew to have men work for her that she had risen from the grave. When Seabrook came face to face with the zombies, he found men with glazed looks in their eyes. He likened them to a dog he had once seen in the historical laboratory in Columbia, which had had its entire front brain removed. The men, as the dog in the lab, were alive but emotionless, staring blankly into nothingness. Seabrook took one of the men's hands and greeted him. Bonjour, compère. But Lamercy quickly intervened and told him to leave. Seabrook translated her words as, Negro's affairs are not for the whites. Seabrook felt that the Men were probably mentally handicapped in some way, but Polynes continued to insist on his story of voodoo. Seabrook spoke about his experience with Dr. Antoine Villers before he left Haiti. He told of the men he had seen and hypothesized that their handicaps as being rational cause for their condition. Villers agreed that this could be possible but was not so sure, telling Seabrook there are many more truths in Polynice's stories than Seabrook would like to admit. He showed Article 246 of the Haitian Criminal Code, which states, It shall also be qualified as an attempted murder, the employment which may be made against any person of substance which, without causing actual death, produce a lethargic coma more or less prolonged, if after the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder no matter what results follow. The implication to Seabrook was a simple one. That he had seen was common enough to require it to be legally recognized criminal practice. This had a profound effect on Seabrook, for this was Haiti, where they practiced voodoo, and these were the walking dead. Port-au-Prince, 1982. Wade Davis had spent time before traveling to Haiti hypothesizing on a rational explanation for apparent zombification of Clairvius Narcisse. He had concluded that the African plant Datura stramonium could have been used as the basis of a poison that could have been in introduced to Haiti along with the African traditions. Datura stramonium could also be used in a concoction that when rubbed on the skin would have a variety of effects including hallucinations, delusions, confusion, disorientation, and amnesia. In large doses, it could fell a human into a numb stupor 
or even results in death. When Davis arrived in Haiti, he met with Max Bavor. Bavor was renowned authority on Haitian voodoo, and he warned Davis he would be looking for zombie poison for some time, as it was not a poison which made a zombie, but a bokor, a voodoo priest. He invited him to witness one of the commercial voodoo ceremonies later that night. <coughs> Davis obliged, and Julie spent the night enthralled as he watched a mambo uh, a voodoo priestess trace out symbols on the ground to invoke spirits amongst prayer and drums. An initiate of the temple, a hunsis, thrashed and danced wildly until the spirit arrived, possessing her whereby she began to careen around the floor of the temple, chewed glass, sacrificed a dove by breaking its wings, biting its throat out, then lay on a fire and danced while holding a red coal in her mouth. When the drums stopped, the spirits left, and Davis began, had been given a vivid introduction into Haitian voodoo. Davis next met with Clarice Narcisse. Narcisse vividly told Davis of his experience of death, of lying on, in hospital, aware of his family next to him while he was presumed dead, of being buried, of how a nail hammered into the lid of his coffin had pierced his cheek, of being called out of the ground by a voodoo priest, beaten, bound, and taken away to work as a slave. He was conscious the entire time, but not living. He assured Davis that throughout the ordeal, he was very much a dead man. Narcisse knew that he had become what he had become, but was powerless to stop it. The bokor took head my soul, he said. Davis spent the next day exploring Haiti and trying to find any trace of Deruda Stramonium. He found none. The poison. Davis' next stop was to meet with Marcel Pierre, a voodoo priest whom he was assured could create a zombie. He asked Pierre to create him a poison to turn a man into a zombie, and after some haggling, Pierre agreed. Davis watched Pierre ground various plants into a mortar, grated a human skull and added the shavings, and finally added several sachets of colored talc. He placed green powder into a small glass bottle, and Davis left, convinced the powder in the bottle was worthless. He had not noticed any of the ingredients to contain anything he could have psychoactive or physiological effects. He returned after 10 days and confronted Pierre. He told him that his backers in America could pay him thousands upon thousands of pounds if the poison were real, for they were interested in its possible pharmaceutical uses. After a bit of bravado between men, Marcel finally capsulated and agreed to make a zombie poison, this time for real. Davis joined Pierre in collecting several ingredients. This time the ingredients were far more gruesome to Davis, far more promising and included digging the body of a three-year-old child from her grave. They worked by night, and after they rubbed an oily substance on their skin, Pierre crushed the head of a decaying corpse of the decaying corpse open, and his hands added to a mortar already containing plants and carcasses of a toad, a large sea worm that had been placed inside a jar, buried in the ground until the creature had died from rage. Several fish that had been placed in a grill to burn were added while the whole thing was crushed into a powder, poured into glass jars, placed into the coffin of the corpse of the child and buried in the ground of Pierre's temple for three days. Davis had his poison. Before his return to America, and quite coincidentally while out walking, Davis stumbled upon a field of plants that he recognized. It was an entire field of Deruda stramonium. After Davis returned to Harvard, he immediately sent his poison to the laboratory, along with the specimens of the ingredients for toxicological analysis. His results were fascinating. He found that the plants had all had psychological effects, leading to rashes, sores, skin irritations. The toad contained multiple multitude of poisons, but importantly, all the symptoms matched the symptoms clever. Clarivius Narcisse showed before his death. The sea worm made logical sense as the toad would secrete more of its toxins if it th felt threatened. 
So by placing the creatures together in a jar and burying them, they were not only dying of rage, but the toad was being coerced into creating hazardous amounts of toxin before its death simply by the presence of the worm in the jar. The real breakthrough came with the fish, however. The species used for the poison was blowfish, or puffer. The poison of the blowfish is tetradon toxin is one of the most poisonous toxins known. Its effects include reduction of temperature, a prickling sensation leading to numbness, often giving the feeling of floating, paralysis, glassy eye, eventually leading to a comatose state. However, full of consciousness is retained until either the victim of the poison dies or recovers, depending on the dosage. This, Davis hypothesized, would not only explain why, when upon speaking with Narcisse, he could remember everything about his death or and his feeling of floating above the ground, but it could also perfectly explain how he could have, for all intents and purposes, appeared dead to the physicians in the hospital. He researched more into the puffer's poison and found several cases in history, especially in Japan, where it's often eaten as a delicacy of people dying, only to miraculously return to life on their way to the morgue. <coughs> the plants were used as an irritant, a way to which create a sore, an open wound, which would allow toxins to reach the bloodstream. It all fell into place so neatly. So what did Deruda from its original... So what of the Deruda from its original... Hypothesis. Although not the main poison, Davis recalled his conversation with Narcisse and noted that upon being taken from his grave, he was immediately beaten and bound by his voodoo grave robbers. Davis believed that Deruda is used after the zombie poison, while the victim's psychological state is still frail, as a way to create a constant state of disorientation, effectively zombifying a victim for as long as the poison was used maintaining a constant psychological stupor. This would often explain why, after the death of Narcisse's master, the zombies had been able to break free of their slavery as the effect of the drug no longer being administered wore off. But whilst all of the fieldwork provided a material basis for understanding zombification voodoo, voodoo has its own rules. Now that Davis had a grasp on the practicalities of zombification, he was driven to understand the meaning through this through his search discovered in Bizango secret voodoo societies. The trace of lineage of rites and rituals descending from the hidden groups of escaped slaves throughout the colonial French rule, these groups of men and women acting out their cultural traditions in the mountains would eventually form a militia that played a forefront role in fighting of the rebellion. Now these traditions survived as a secret religious sect, meeting in shadows, shadowy temples during the black of night, submitting offerings into coffins lit by firelight as drums rattle and priests sing. The Bazengo both protect the communities and enact measures of judgment. As Davis was told directly during his time in Haiti, Bazengo can be sweet as honey and bitter as bile. Clairvus Narcisse himself told Davis vaguely, of a tribunal and judgment period prior to his death and being pulled from his grave. Zombification is something of a form of capital punishment from the Bizango. Narcisse knew he had wronged the community and understood his punishment and the extent and context of voodoo. He accepted his fate as a zombie and a voodoo, as voodoo dictates, he had become the walking dead. Oof. Very cool article from Dark Histories. All right, short break. Back after this. All right, welcome back. Our next article comes from a news source for WGNO ABC. It's called Hometown Horror Stories A Voodoo Encounter of the Worst Kind. It's written by Christopher Leach. New Orleans, Louisiana. You might need some good gree for this story after about a stirring nightmarish tale in the Treme community. 
Balthazar Ashanta's son is a traditional voodoo priest in New Orleans and says voodoo in and of itself is a healing tradition. When we get called for something, we automatically have the mind to heal the rift between somebody's ancestor and them. But seeing some of the things I've seen, I go and prepared for just about anything. Ashantazen had otherworldly encounter three years ago that would make blood curdle. He, assigned, he was assigned to help a family of clients for what he believed to be a mild case of bad juju. He had been started out what may have started out with a bit of negative energy had now become food for some malicious something malicious inside the home. I knew something was off because of, as soon as I started getting closer to the house, goosebumps in the back of my neck went off and everything within me was saying, turn around. Things started falling off the walls and getting knocked from the shelves and windows started rattling, says Shantison. Ashantison believes to this day he was up against a slender man, an entity with intention of tormenting its victims. All I say, all I saw was the shadow of a person. It was extremely large. It had extremely long arms and legs in the high corner, sitting there watching, said Ashantison. After fighting with the being for four hours with the use of camphor, Palo Santo and Sage, the entity had gone. The mind is an amazing thing. Many voodoo practitioners will tell you that in voodoo religion, sometimes when you really want something to happen, it does. Sometimes when you really don't want something to happen, it does as well. And that's Hometown Horror Stories brought to you by the Mortuary. <clears throat> freaky, freaky. Very scary. All right, welcome back. We're going to jump right into Nine True Stories About Encounters with Witchcraft, Voodoo, and the Occult by Emily Madriga. I was a victim of a bear walker. In the First Nations culture, a bear walker is someone who uses our sacred med medicines for bad and not good. They can make someone very sick. Only a medicine man can reverse it, and it often comes as a gamble for the bear walker. Once reversed, they will suffer more than the one they made sick. I was 20 years old and very healthy. One night I had a dream I was in a field picking wildflowers. From each direction, a tornado was coming at me. I woke up in a fevered sweat. That began two months of sheer misery. My doctor kept saying that I had... A UTI. She would give me antibiotics and it would subside for a while. I lost 40 pounds in the span of two months, and by the end of it, I couldn't walk. Barely ate. Finally, my mom got tired of it, and my sister bundled me up and we went to the hospital. Through an earlier ultrasound showed nothing. Though an ult earlier ultrasound showed nothing, there was a huge growth on my ovary. A few days later, I had surgery where the doctor came to visit me. He said he had never seen anything like it. It was a yellow, almost concrete-like substance around my ovary. I got better, but my mother remained unconvinced and scheduled an appointment with the medicine man. We gave him tobacco, and he smoked a pipe and sang a song. He said something along the lines of a woman seeing me at a powwow. She became interested in who I was because of my mother. She threw a piece of medicine in my path, and I stepped on it and it went up the right leg. She asked me if I still felt it, and I said yes. He took a bone from what I am not sure, placed it in the area, and began to suck. Weird, I know. He started vomiting yellow. Vomiting yellow, like the doctor said. He gave me medicine and rituals for my mom to do. I went home that night and slept for 13 hours. My sickness never returned. All right, the next one is called Dating App Witch. This happened a few years ago. I was on a dating site and matched with an attractive person, so I started chatting. We made it to the plans tonight part of the conversation, and she told me she was going to play hide-and-seek with Fluffy. Pointing out the item in the second profile picture, a bloody rabbit mask. Eh, okay, let's be weird. 
So I played along until she mentioned that they would be playing in my basement. I thought, how in the hell? Eh, wild guess, probably. I lied and told her I didn't have a basement. Immediately, she texted, oh yeah? And I heard, uh, snick, schnickler fritz booming from the basement. I won't lie to you, Reddit. I about shit myself. Obviously, I blocked her and froze for an hour before I gathered the courage to check my completely enclosed from the outside basement. I didn't find anything. Thankfully, I didn't have a smart device at all, and I didn't have any speakers that could have been hacked. I didn't even have wireless internet at the time. The basement was completely empty. I can't explain it in the slightest. No pictures. I went to a voodoo shop in New Orleans that had a lot of signs up that said no pictures. My boyfriend's mom wanted some voodoo dolls and wanted to see pictures of them before she bought them. I told him not to because I had a bad feeling about it. Immediately after taking the pictures, his cell phone lost signal. Mine was totally fine. He couldn't send the picture, so we walked outside, and a car drove by and splashed him with water, but I was dry. Freaked us out. I told him to delete the pictures, and we had to buy the two dolls he took pictures of. Angry Ghost. A ghost pulled my father from the ankles out of his bed when he was sleeping because he didn't want to go to his aunt's funeral the same week. My mom was with him, of course, and woke up to see how he'd just in the middle of the bed with his legs dangling outside. He was scared, pale, from fear. We had been... We have had so many paranormal stuff happen to us. Maybe it's because of where we live. Next one, I could feel the power. <coughs> when I was a teen, a bunch of my friends went through a Wiccan phase. I honestly thought it was a bunch of hooey, but played along for the most part because they could have gotten, because hey, they could have gotten into drugs or horses instead, right? But despite thinking it's bullshit, there was one moment that made me question things. Us girls had met up to hang out. One was brandishing a wooden walking stick. I poured my energy into this totem, she declared, and then started passing it around the room. The others cooed about how they could feel the power within as they held it. Of course, so someone handed the stick to me eventually. I could barely contain my eyes as I took my eye roll as I took it. As I held the walking stick, it sent a ting tingling sensation up my arm. I passed it on quickly. Not as dramatic as some of the stories here, but gosh, it was weird. The Silver Pendant. When I was in high school, I had this sudden bout of nightmares and sleep paralysis. I wasn't going through a stressful time or anything, and I don't freak out easily. I grew up watching 80s, 90s horror films, and I normally sleep in total darkness with doors closed. The nightmares were super sudden and happened almost every night. It was a constant sleep paralysis where my room was on fire or there were bats thrashing around above me, and there was a figure hovering above my body that I couldn't breathe. Sometimes my speakers let out a strange frequency type sound, even when it was switched off. Things would fall off my shelves. My mom would always find me sleeping on the couch the next morning with the TV on because it was so crazy. Suddenly, it all stopped. When I told my mom, she admitted that she had sought advice from a priestess who engraved a blessing for me on a silver pendant and instructed my mom to place it in my room. She didn't want to tell me to see if it would work. I never had such episodes since. Next one, my grandma made me pay. I was about 13, and my grandma was a believer in spirits, witches, etc. When I had just pissed her off, and she told me I was going to pay. That night, I woke up around 3 in the morning, and saw I and I saw a little kid with a green shirt in my room. He stared at me for about a minute, and I couldn't look away. He then ran right out of my room, straight through the door, laughing. About 30 minutes later, another figure appeared in my room who looked about 15. He stared at me, mumbled something, and no matter how I tried to talk, I couldn't talk, scream, or move. I could only look. He then vanished into seemingly thin air. 
The next night, I woke up at the same time and it sounded as if there were 50 people in my room screaming at me to kill myself, kill my family, and just a lot of negative thoughts in general. The next day, I got anointed and it stopped. Later that day, I had seen my grandma and I instantly started to get sick after I hugged her and she just sat there with a smirk on her face. I then got anointed again and it stopped. I still can't explain how she did it, but I, to this day, am afraid of my grandma to make my grandma mad. Next one. I used to work in an adult or in an occult bookstore. I used to work in an occult bookstore. We sold mostly psychic nonsense and spiritualistic new agey stuff, but there was a bookcase in the back of really expensive stuff. The owner was this real old, real wise man. This woman used to come in when I was working, and she'd just talk for ages and ages. It was nonstop bullshit. She knew this. She did that. Did you know about this? And on and on. She'd suck up a ton of time, and if you ever heard of an energy vampire, it would apply here. She left you feeling drained. One day, she comes in while the owner is there. She walks up to the counter and starts her stick. He's very polite and listening, but she sort of runs out of steam like within 60 seconds. She hums and haws a bit and then walks out of the store. It would usually take me an hour to get rid of her, and he shut her down in a minute flat with a smile on his face. <laughs> I mention it to him, and he says, there's a circle of protection painted under the floor for a reason. Oh, wow. Revenge. Kid I was kid I was friends with in high school was jumped in two separate occasions. First, a mutual friend lured him outside his house where a large group of dudes waited. One of them jumped him and beat him fairly badly. Second was very high school, meet me after school type fight, which my friend won and was subsequently jumped by the fight loser's boxer friend. That one got severely fucked up. So... FF a year or so, he and I had gr grown kind of apart. He tells me he's getting into Satanism and made a pact to sell his soul. He asked me for three. He asked for three, the one that lured him, the loser of the second fight, and the boxer, all to be killed. Luring the guy died in a freak car accident two-ish years later, thrown from the back of a topless jeep. Loser of the second f fight died four-ish years later of a heroin overdose, and the boxer died four-ish years later. Don't know how. We're in our mid-40s now. He's married with a kid. All probably total coincidence, but at the time I was like, WTF did you do? All right, that wraps up our voodoo episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed if you want to connect with us on Facebook, please join us on Facebook group Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz is in parentheses, on Facebook. That is a group. Um, it's a private group, but go ahead and add yourself. Everyone that wants to be a part of it is approved. Uh, there we just share funny, uh, spooky memes. Uh, we post our stories that you hear on the podcast. Um, if you have any personal stories feel free to send them to me andrew chapman if you want to remain anonymous or you can post it right to the group there um other than that i hope you enjoyed uh be sure to tell your friends and invite them to the page as well and keep sending your stories all right stay spooky my friends until next time